This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse and slavery that some listeners may find offensive. We advise extreme caution to listeners under 13. In 1965, 31-year-old Sante Kimes walked into a Cadillac dealership. Sante was an Elizabeth Taylor lookalike with luxurious black hair and dramatic cheekbones. That day, she played up the resemblance, dressed to the nines with huge rings on every finger. Waving her jewel-coated hand, Sante casually made the salesperson an offer. She would pay for a new convertible in cash if she could take it for a test drive alone. She knew it was an unorthodox request, but Sante explained that she needed to know how the convertible drove without any passengers. The extra weight would throw off the equilibrium of the car, and she was very sensitive to motion sickness. Was there really any harm in letting her take it around the block? Eventually, the salesperson agreed. Sante thanked them profusely as she drove off the lot, never to return. After an hour or so, the embarrassed salesperson called the police to report the theft. Several months later, Highway Patrol located the missing vehicle when Sante was pulled over for speeding. She explained to the arresting officer that she hadn't stolen the car. She was still taking it for a test drive. This grift was merely an opening salvo in a lifestyle of fraud that eventually led Sante Kimes to commit blackmail, slavery, and multiple murders. When she was finally caught in July of 1998, the arresting officer described Sante as the most ingenious, evil con artist I have seen. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're diving into the dark lifestyle of Sante Kimes. Sante ran cons for the majority of her life and involved both her husband, Kenneth Kimes Sr., and their son, Kenny, in her elaborate plots. She made them accomplices to fraud, arson, human trafficking, and murder. Next week, we'll explore Sante and Kenny's biggest con, how their gambit led to their downfall, and why the pair earned the nickname Mommy and Clyde. Sante Kimes was born on July 24, 1934. It was the height of the Great Depression and Sante's father struggled to scratch out a living as the Dust Bowl desolated Oklahoma. Sante said of her childhood, I just remember being starved and hungry all the time, and there was never any money. In 1944, when Sante was 10 years old, her father died. The rest of the family moved to Los Angeles for better prospects, but Sante's mother soon fell into alcoholism and sex work. Sante and her three siblings were often left to fend for themselves. They roamed the streets, unwashed and barefoot, always in search of something to eat. By the time Sante was 11, she resorted to shoplifting to feed herself. When the owner of a local soda shop Kelly Seligman caught Sante red-handed for the dozenth time, he took pity on the little girl. From that point forward, he and his wife Dottie made sure she had a hot meal every day in exchange for Sante's solemn promise to stop plundering their store. As the Seligmans got to know young Sante, they determined she was bright and precocious and only acted out due to her troubled home life. So Dottie decided to give the little girl the opportunity for a better, more stable future. With the agreement of Sante's disinterested mother, Dottie arranged for Sante to be adopted by her sister, Mary Chambers. And in 1946, 12-year-old Sante moved to Carson City, Nevada to live with Mary and her husband, Edwin. Sante embraced life with the Chambers. She said, The adoption was the most important thing that ever happened to me. I went from nothing to everything. I had my own room and new clothes and very nice parents. But when Sante was 16, her sticky fingers returned. She was arrested for shoplifting a tube of lipstick in 1951. And then she stole one of Edwin's credit cards for a shopping spree, racking up hundreds of dollars in charges. When Sante graduated high school in June of 1952, the Chambers asked her to move out. Sante agreed the relationship soured, but she alleged it was not because of her thievery, 
but because she revealed to Mary Chambers that Edwin sexually abused her from the time she was 13. She said, I matured at an early age and looked years older than I was. I never told anyone for years. It's hard to explain, but I really liked him. I knew it was wrong. I didn't like it, but I was starved for affection. Sante's abuse claims have never been substantiated. However, if they are true, this experience could have severely influenced her understanding of relationship power dynamics. Psychotherapist Lynn Yonak wrote that sexual abuse typically arises within asymmetrical power dynamics, where the perpetrator occupies a more powerful or dominant position in relation to the victim. Abusers have what their victims, who are in less powerful positions, want and need. Edwin Chambers essentially plucked Sante off the street, fed her, clothed her, and housed her. If the abuse occurred, Sante may have felt powerless to stop it for fear that her stable new life would be ripped away from her. To protect herself from being victimized in the future, Sante vowed she'd never be poor again. So, following the conventions of the 1950s, she decided she needed a husband. In November of 1957, 23-year-old Sante married Edward Walker, a high school classmate who co-owned a construction business with his father. The Walkers lived a comfortable upper-middle-class life in Sacramento, but the threat of poverty still haunted Sante. Edward Walker said his wife had a constant paranoia about finances. She hid caches of money around the house and urged Walker to push for salary increases whenever possible. She also convinced him to earn an architecture degree. That way, Sante convinced Walker, he could design properties in addition to building them, cutting out the middleman to keep more of the profits. Over time, Walker's business grew, and so did his bank account. But no matter how much money piled up, Sante's fear of the poorhouse never dissipated. She started shoplifting again, even though she had plenty of money. She stole credit cards from strangers and racked up false charges. She even ran out on dinner tabs. While there are many theories on what motivates wealthy people to shoplift, Sante was compelled by pathological thriftiness. When she was arrested for filching a hairdryer, she told her husband that she did it to save money. This marked the beginning of a lifestyle completely centered around the mantra, why pay for something if you can get it for free? In addition to theft, Sante escalated her crimes to forgery and fraud. She practiced her husband's signature hundreds of times until she could possibly sign his name on checks. Then she slowly drained the account, hoarding a nest egg. And as soon as she had siphoned enough cash in 1967, 33-year-old Sante filed for divorce. 
Edward Walker alleged that she forged his signature on an alimony agreement that awarded her $1,400 a month, the equivalent of $11,000 a month today. Ultimately, the divorce court judge reduced the amount by half, but Sante was unconcerned. She had already moved on to another man with a bigger bank account. In late 1969, 35-year-old Sante read a feature in Millionaire magazine on 53-year-old Kenneth Kimes Sr. He was six foot two, handsome, worth over $10 million and, most importantly, recently divorced. Kenneth was currently living in Palm Springs, California, overseeing modifications on the 150-room Tropics Hotel. Angling to capitalize on Kenneth's single status, Sante quickly moved to the desert and scouted for a way to introduce herself. She penetrated the rings of his outer circle, currying favor with everyone she met, until she worked her way to Kenneth Kimes. Eventually, Sante leveraged a meeting with him under the guise of a business opportunity. She'd learned enough sitting on the periphery of Edward Walker's development company to make herself seem like a legitimate new client. Having done her homework on Kenneth Kimes' personality, Sante arranged for his sister and business associate, Hannah, to join them. Having someone familiar in the room put him at ease and allowed Kimes to be charmed by Sante. As the meeting concluded, they exchanged numbers and agreed to meet again. Once Sante wedged her foot in Kenneth's door, she devoted herself entirely to squeezing the rest of the way through the frame. She pressed everyone who was close to him for information. She asked about his favorite food, favorite color, favorite brandy, favorite cigar. When his sister told Sante that his favorite flower was gardenias, she ordered a case of gardenia-scented perfume. Sante made sure that any time she was with Kenneth, it was the best, most exciting, most delicious experience he'd ever had. Whenever he thought about her, even in passing, she wanted him to think of absolute pleasure. In addition to overdosing him on euphoria, Sante stroked Kenneth's ego. His sister Hannah said of the seduction tactics, she just made him her number one project. She quit trying to put herself on a pedestal and just put him on one at all times in an adoring sort of way, acting like he was the most brilliant genius she had ever met. After only a few months, Sante started acting as Kenneth's bulldog and advocate, speaking up for him when he was too shy or too polite to do so. When they went out to a cocktail lounge, Sante customarily sent back his drinks, complaining that they weren't properly made or didn't have the right amount of ice. At restaurants, she ordered elaborate off-menu dishes, insisting that he needed something special from the chef. Then, when the food didn't arrive immediately, she caused a scene, abhorred by the staff's rude treatment. At any perceived slight towards Kenneth, Sante launched into a protective rage. 
This kind of behavior served two purposes. First, it was more ego-stroking. She only made a scene because she believed her boyfriend deserved the best of everything. Reticent Kenneth couldn't complain about a bad haircut, let alone a bad steak. Sante was happy to fight those battles, real or imagined, for him. Secondly, Sante's scathing treatment of anyone subservient to her normalized casual verbal abuse in their relationship. Eventually, Kenneth accepted that these outbursts were just Sante being Sante. Instead of standing up to her, Kenneth left a generous tip for any demoralized waitress. This also laid the groundwork for a shift in power dynamics in their relationship. Under the guise of doing what was best for him, Sante slowly assumed the reins of Kenneth Kimes' life. Dictating where they traveled and what they ate eventually grew to larger decisions about how he spent his money and who he should be friends with. If Kenneth didn't agree with her demands, Sante exploded in rage and histrionics. Sociologist Dr. Richard J. Oshie studied coercive behavior and attitude change. He identified three distinct phases in coercive relationships unfreezing, change, and refreezing. He wrote, Unfreezing is the first step in developing a belief system that facilitates the long-term management of a person. The goals of unfreezing are to destabilize a person's sense of identity and to foster a sense of powerlessness, if not hopelessness. It thereby reduces resistance to the new demands for compliance while increasing suggestibility. What began as thoughtful caretaking grew to complete domination. Eventually, Kimes couldn't go anywhere, speak to anyone, or buy anything without Sante finding out about it. There's no evidence that Sante and Kenneth Kimes were ever legally married. But in 1972, 38-year-old Sante assumed the role of doting spouse anyway. She started using his last name and wearing a huge 10-carat diamond ring. Kenneth didn't take any action to legally object the matronymic hijack. He may have decided it wasn't worth the drama, knowing that it wasn't official. On a few different occasions, at the urging of his family, Kenneth tried to end the relationship. But Sante outright refused to accept a breakup. She used a variety of tactics, everything from pregnancy scares to suicide threats, to keep Kimes from extricating himself from her influence. And every time, he let her back in. Then, in 1973, 57-year-old Kenneth Kimes suffered a stroke that left one side of his body partially paralyzed. Embarrassed by his weakened state, he isolated himself and stopped seeing his friends and family. It gave Sante ultimate, unfettered sway over him. Coming up, Sante grooms Kenneth Kimes to facilitate her cons. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. After 57-year-old Kenneth Kimes suffered a stroke in 1973, he fell even deeper under 39-year-old Sante Kimes' control. She'd spent the last five years completely enmeshing herself in his life, plying him with opulent, pleasurable experiences. And while her behavior was domineering, even abusive, Kenneth undeniably enjoyed the excitement she brought to his life. Eventually, Sante introduced Kimes to a completely different kind of thrill, hustling. As with most cons, Sante presented the first scheme to Kenneth as a savvy business investment. America's Bicentennial was just around the corner in 1976, and the event was a surefire merchandising opportunity. She encouraged him to create a promotional item now, in 1973, so they could preempt any competition. Kenneth remembered the patriotic fanfare that surrounded the 150th anniversary in 1926, so he agreed the public could be interested in a keepsake for the 200th. He designed a poster titled The Forum of Man, it was a collection of all the flags ever flown in the US, including every state's flags. He thought it would be a nice piece to hang in someone's office or lobby. When Sante saw the design, she gushed over it. She declared that his historic poster deserved better than a few offices. It should hang in every classroom across America and make young minds appreciate their nation's long history. They should make a deal with the US government to buy the posters in bulk. But even though Kenneth was a millionaire, he didn't have any connections in Washington. He didn't know how to find a buyer. Of course, Sante had a solution. She wrote to the official Bicentennial Committee and included a copy of the Forum of Man poster. However, she didn't outline any of her entrepreneurial goals in her letter. That wasn't why she reached out. All she wanted was their reply, including its signature. This was one of Sante's favorite methods of forgery. She took the reply letter to a copy machine store and covered the middle section, the body of the letter, with a blank piece of paper. On the copies, all that remained was the letterhead and the signature. This left Sante free to write whatever she wanted under the guise of official Bicentennial Committee business. To further sell the con, she lifted the stationery's logo too. She used it to make Kenneth business cards, titling him the Honorary Bicentennial Ambassador of the United States. It's not clear if Kenneth knew Sante invented this honorific for him, or if he believed he had actually earned it. Either way, he went along with the growing ruse. 
Sante audaciously used the forged stationery to write to the committee again, posing as the very same person who'd replied to her first letter. But this time, she asked the Bicentennial Committee to arrange a pinning ceremony for Kenneth Kimes to make his ambassadorship official. Surprisingly, it worked. By the time the board member realized the letters were forged, the wheels were already in motion. Calling off the ceremony would be a complete embarrassment. They had purchased some of the posters for the Bicentennial offices. What was the harm in giving Kenneth Kimes a meaningless title? But that was only phase one. Sante used the pinning ceremony to leverage a meeting with the USPS, hoping they might hang the Forum of Man in post offices. She even managed to dupe First Lady Patricia Nixon's gatekeepers by forging a letter from Nixon's communications director with the same Xerox scheme. But the coup de grace came on February 26, 1974. Sante and Kenneth managed to infiltrate a state dinner and reception held by Vice President Gerald Ford at Blair House across the street from the White House. They made it all the way through the receiving line to meet Ford and his wife, snagging yet another picture, all the while telling them about the Forum of Man. It took about that long for the Secret Service to realize they were party crashers and promptly escort the Kimeses outside. Undeterred, Kenneth and Sante simply walked next door to a Smithsonian black tie dinner and continued advertising their bicentennial merchandise. After they were booted again, they crashed parties at the West German Embassy down the street, then the nearby Belgian Embassy. There, Sante commandeered the microphone and extolled the virtues of the bicentennial, its honorary ambassador, and his artistic and affordable posters. They were again quickly figured out and sent home. Soon after, the Washington Star published an article about the evening titled The Greatest Crash Since 1929. Neither Kenneth nor Sante faced any repercussions outside of a strongly worded cease and desist letter from the Bicentennial Committee. However, they also never made a deal to mass-produce the posters. The fact that Kenneth Kimes went along with the Bicentennial caper shows that, just as Sante normalized casual abuse in their relationship, she successfully normalized casual fraud. Returning to Dr. Richard J. Oshie, this represented the change phase. Oshie wrote, The change phase allows the individual an opportunity to escape punishing destabilization procedures by demonstrating that he or she has learned the proffered ideology through displays of commitment. In the case of Sante and Kenneth's night crashing state dinners, there were no consequences for their crimes. Not to mention it was really, really fun. For Kenneth, it was the perfect introduction to the art of bending the rules. So much so, that when America's bicentennial actually rolled around in 1976, 42-year-old Sante and 60-year-old Kenneth were under investigation. Sante had reported that a tapestry worth $100,000 was stolen from Kenneth's office. 
she wanted the insurance company to write her a check equal to its value. But her claim was immediately red-flagged for fraud. First, there weren't any signs of a break-in. And second, the insurance company determined the tapestry was worth, at most, $800. When Sante refused to drop her $100,000 claim, they threatened to press charges. To avoid potential legal consequences, the Kimeses moved to Hawaii in April of 1976. And when the insurance company tried to depose Kenneth's mother, Naoma, and his aunt, Alice, about the supposed heirloom, Sante acted quickly. Before the insurance investigators could get any information, Sante flew the women to Hawaii. While in Hawaii, Sante started to regulate Kenneth's mother and aunt, both elderly women, in the same way she did her husband. As before, it started as feigned concern, worried that the insurance company might try to serve a subpoena for Naoma's testimony, Sante forbade the women from speaking to any strangers. Anyone they didn't know could be a process server in disguise. She kept them from using the phone and confiscated their letters. Naoma and Alice were, in effect, captives. And Kenneth, a prisoner himself, did nothing to intervene. Sante only let them leave the house unaccompanied to go to church and insisted that they come home immediately after services. One afternoon, the women decided to go out to lunch instead of going to church, as it was their only time out of the house. Though they returned by the time Sante expected them, somehow she still knew they had disobeyed her and flew into a rage. Naoma realized that Sante must have had them followed. After a few months of this treatment, the two women contacted Alice's children through a friend at church. One Sunday, they went to services and made their escape. During prayers, they snuck out the back door and into their friend's car. The women drove straight to the airport with only the clothes on their backs. When Naoma and Alice landed in California, their relatives were shocked by their appearance. They were gaunt, half-starved, and showed signs of physical abuse. When a doctor examined Alice, he found that her vagina had been sewn closed with black thread. But this was only Sante's first foray into human captivity. She eventually graduated to full-blown slavery. The Kimeses owned mansions in San Diego, Palm Springs, Las Vegas, Cancun, and Honolulu. To maintain those houses, Sante recruited a staff of maids, cooks, and housekeepers. However, ever the miser, she didn't think it was necessary to pay these women for their work. Throughout the late 1970s and early 1980s, Sante trawled for illegal immigrants to hire, offering them employment for cash under the table. She found them at homeless shelters, bus depots, and even employment offices. 
she promised them a comfortable life in a gorgeous house and $150 each month, worth about $450 today. But no one was ever paid. And Sante treated the women abhorrently. 21-year-old Maribel Ramirez Cruz, an immigrant from El Salvador, spent five terrible months in Sante's home in Honolulu. When she was taken to her room the first day, Maribel realized that it locked only from the outside. She was forbidden from speaking to strangers or with any of the other household staff. She wasn't allowed to answer the front door or speak on the phone. Maribel wrote letters to her family, but Sante never mailed them. Because everyone feared Sante's wrath, the household staff willingly spied on each other, reporting transgressions. And if anyone tried to stand up to Sante, she threatened to have them deported. She warned them that the immigration police would beat and rape them before sending them home. Maribel later testified that one afternoon she was ironing some clothes when Sante confronted her, enraged. She found a piece of paper with another maid's name and telephone number written on it in Maribel's room. A capital offense. Sante ordered Maribel to strip in front of her. She needed to make sure she wasn't hiding any other contraband. As Maribel cowered before her, Naked, Sante threatened to call immigration to send her back to El Salvador. Then she picked up the hot iron. Maybe she would burn Maribel's face as punishment. No one would give her another job once Sante disfigured her. Sante lunged forward with the iron. Maribel ducked, covering her head. Sante pressed the scorching metal into Maribel's left hand. Flesh sizzled, but Maribel survived. Maribel was only one of the dozens of indentured household servants Sante held captive. But these women weren't the only people that Sante enslaved. The person who arguably suffered the most at the hands of Sante was her own son, Kenneth Kimes Jr., Kenny was the ultimate subject of her pathological need for control, made from her own flesh. Family friends concluded that Kenny had no chance at a normal life with Sante as a mother and role model. Beverly Bates Stone, who lived near the Kimeses in Hawaii, said, Kenny had no way of getting out of the house, no way of socializing, and no way of doing anything without her permission. She really brainwashed him from the time he was a small child. He's not a real person. He's a clone of everything Sante taught him. Coming up, Sante raises her son to be a crook. Now back to the story. From the time Kenneth Kimes Jr. was born in March of 1975, 40-year-old Sante made her son an accomplice to her crimes. Baby Kenny was a shoplifting shield, the perfect distraction for eagle-eyed sales clerks. 
Sante even tucked items in Kenny's stroller and diaper to avoid detection. And by the time he was six, Kenny was a skilled shoplifter and pickpocket in his own right. Kenny had no real influences outside of Sante. Kenneth Kimes Sr., who Kenny called Papa Kimes, had developed a drinking problem. He disengaged from his son's life, allowing Sante to take complete control. As soon as Kenny was old enough, Sante insisted on homeschooling him and tasked an army of tutors with his education. But because she treated these tutors the same way she treated the maids, none of them stuck around for long. This revolving door of teachers completely stunted Kenny's academic progress. Neighbor Beverly Bates Stone described Kenny as very slow and not sharp. Kenny couldn't do anything. He couldn't even talk. We thought Kenny had a learning disability. Because he was kept inside the house or with Sante at all times, Kenny had a hard time making friends. So Sante started paying some of the neighborhood children to play with him. Cara Craver-Jones, one of the rented companions, said that she was often picked up in a limousine for her afternoons with Kenny. But despite this luxury, the kids never got the privilege of choosing what games they played. Sante always decided for them. Cara also reported that, from a young age, Kenny was a quick-witted liar. In one of their earliest meetings, Kara asked why he was homeschooled. Kenny solemnly told her that it was for his own protection. The family had mafia troubles. Another time, when Kara spotted Sante's large collection of wigs and hairpieces, Kenny casually mentioned that his mother was undergoing chemotherapy for cancer. This was, of course, a lie, crafted with a classic con artist technique. Kenny had not only misled Kara to protect his mother's vanity, he had also gained Kara's sympathy. And he did it without missing a beat. Sante had taught him well. In August of 1985, when Kenny was 10, he was granted a reprieve from Sante's influence. One of the enslaved maids escaped the mansion in San Diego and reported Sante to the police. The FBI raided the house, where they discovered several women locked inside their rooms. 51-year-old Sante was promptly placed under arrest for slavery and human trafficking across state lines. Sante and her lawyer tried to downplay her crimes. They emphasized that Sante fed and housed these women in beautiful homes that most people would be envious of. The lawyer also claimed that Sante didn't have time to commit the abuses the maids alleged. She was too busy traveling to her many properties. Sante wrote in her defense, The only thing we are guilty of is allowing unscrupulous, money-hungry maids into the privacy and protection of our home. They had a beautiful life and could leave whenever they wanted. We did not know they were illegal. We certainly didn't know we were doing anything wrong. 
But the FBI had statements from several of Sante's captives to refute this. Dolores Vasquez Salgado worked for the Kimeses when she was 14. One night, she had an allergy attack and rushed herself into the shower. Sante was furious that she'd gotten sick and twisted the shower's temperature knob all the way to scalding hot. When Dolores backed into the corner to escape the stream, Sante repeatedly splashed her with boiling water. In the face of the witnesses' damning statements, Sante made a last-ditch effort to avoid the writing on the wall. In late December of 1985, a few weeks before her trial date, Sante convinced her jailers that she was sick. They sent her to a nearby hospital for treatment. The hospital had weaker security than the jail she was held in, and on December 30th, Sante made a run for it, still wearing her hospital gown. When the FBI caught up to her three days later, Sante tried to claim that she hadn't escaped. She'd been framed. She alleged, Joella, the guard, with absolutely no warning, literally pushed me to an exit and out the door. I did not willfully escape. I was in a sickened, drugged state, handcuffed to my wheelchair. No matter what her reason, she pushed me out and I couldn't get back in. I was sick, injured, bloody, and frightened out of my wits. Joella pulled the escape. I was the victim. I did not plan it or want it. Despite her claim, Sante earned an additional charge of escaping from federal custody and her original trial moved forward as scheduled. On February 27, 1986, 51-year-old Sante was found guilty on 14 felony counts. She was sentenced to five years in federal prison with a $70,000 fine. When the abused maids filed a lawsuit against Sante for their unpaid wages and emotional trauma, Sante simply passed the buck. She tried to convince her homeowner's insurance to cover the damages under her policy, but her plans almost immediately fell through. They respectfully declined, writing, You can be insured if somebody trips and falls on your front step, but we don't insure people for keeping slaves. Kenny Kimes later referred to his mother's incarceration as his golden years. From the ages of 10 to 14, he was actually able to have a life and make his own decisions. It was a complete liberation. Dr. Oshi wrote that when a person is distanced from their coercive situation, the influence of their controller diminishes. He said of these victims, they tend to change dramatically once the person is removed from an environment that has totalistic properties and is organized to support the adaptive attitudes. But Kenny wasn't the only one who changed in Sante's absence. For 70-year-old Kenneth Kimes Sr., the slavery trial was a rude wake-up call. Realizing how much he'd ignored Sante's horrific behavior through drinking, Kenneth entered a 60-day rehab treatment program. 
Once sober, he set to work undoing the damage Sante inflicted on their son. He fired all the tutors and enrolled Kenny in a private Catholic school. He installed a pool in the backyard, a game room and a home theater system, encouraging Kenny to make friends and invite them over to the house. Kenny grew to be popular with his classmates, who found him to be smart, witty and charming. But Papa Kimes and Kenny only had four golden years before Sante was released from prison early for good behavior. Shortly before her release in late 1989, 14-year-old Kenny went to visit one of his relatives. They asked him to move in with them to finish out high school. Once Sante came home, they warned, she'd suck Kenny back into her twisted way of life. Kenny replied, I have to go back. No matter what I do, she's going to make me go back. You don't know my mother. She's never going to let me go. It's futile. True to form, a few months after her return, Sante pulled Kenny out of the private Catholic school. Then she moved him from the Las Vegas house to the San Diego property, effectively cutting him off from any of the friends he'd managed to gain in her absence. Once again, she was to be his only companion. Still unable to stand up to Sante, Kenneth Kimes Sr. returned to alcoholism after she came home from prison. He once again seemed resigned to his fate with his faux wife. The fact that they shared a child only made it harder to escape. And soon, his window of opportunity closed forever. On March 28, 1994, 59-year-old Sante walked into a Wells Fargo bank in Santa Barbara, leaving 78-year-old Kenneth waiting in the car. She was only inside for about 20 minutes. She chatted with a teller who helped her make a deposit, and then made her way outside to her car. But when she opened the driver's side door, she found Kenneth Kimes dead in the passenger's seat. A cursory autopsy revealed that he suffered a fatal aneurysm, likely a side effect of the same heart condition that caused his stroke 20 years earlier. But before a more thorough investigation into his death could be conducted, Sante had Kenneth's body cremated. At the time of his father's death, Kenny was in his freshman year at UC Santa Barbara. Worried how the news would affect his performance on final exams, Sante kept Kenneth's death a secret. When she picked Kenny up from the airport in Las Vegas for summer break, he was surprised that Sante was alone. When he asked her where Papa was, she calmly opened the rear passenger door of the car and pointed to an urn sitting on the back seat. There's Papa. But Kenny didn't even have a chance to react before Sante handed him another plane ticket. They flew to Hawaii to scatter Papa Kime's ashes that night. Kenny wasn't the only person that Sante kept in the dark about Kenneth Kime's death. 
she hid his demise from the world at large by fudging the details on his death certificate. She gave the Santa Barbara coroner the wrong social security number, the wrong middle name, and a P.O. box address in Las Vegas. This deception allowed Sante to hide Kenneth's death from the rest of his family for two years. And in that time, she did whatever she could to gut his estate. Because Sante's marriage to Kenneth wasn't official, she wasn't entitled to a penny, according to his will. The moment his legal dependents, namely his children from his first marriage, learned the truth, Sante would be cut off. With Kenny's help, Sante forged signatures, transferred property deeds, and liquidated assets. Though Kenny's entire childhood was an education in the art of the con, this was a masterclass in financial grift. Like his father, he was excited by the thrill and seeming lack of consequences. A friend of Kenny's said of this change, the Kenny Kimes we knew does not exist anymore. That Kenny Kimes is gone, totally gone. He did not have the strength and character to say no to his mother. Once he got involved in the dark side, he got to love it. He got his excitement from it and it became the focus of his life. And he had become his mother's son. By 1998, Sante and Kenny were a well-oiled scheme machine running all kinds of games around the country. But their biggest scam would spell their downfall when they upgraded to kidnapping and then murder. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Sante and Kenny Kimes. We'll see how their plot to defraud a New York socialite spiraled wildly out of control. For more information on Sante and Kenny Kimes, amongst the many sources we used, we found Gene King's book, Dead End, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Lieberskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artist was written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>